2: Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. My name is Michael Johnston, and today I have Dr. Dan Emmergluck with me, who is a professor of urban studies at Georgia State University. Welcome, Dan, if I may. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, glad to to be here. Excellent. Uh, Dan's work is uh, in housing, race, neighborhood change, gentrification, segregation, real estate markets, and community development. Uh, He is the author of five books and over 120 scholarly articles, book chapters, and research reports. He has consulted with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, the U.S. Department of Justice, Philanthropic Foundations, and local legal aid, and other nonprofits and government agencies. He has been cited and quoted in the New York Times, Washington Post, National Public Radio, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, WABE Radio, and many other international, national, and local media outlets. He has also testified several times before the U.S. Congress and the Federal Reserve Board and served as a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, as well as served as a senior fellow at the Center for Community Progress in Washington, D.C. Recently, Dr. Emmer served on Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens' Transition Committee. However, today we'll be discussing his most recent book, "Red Hot City: Housing, Race, and Exclusion in 21st Century Atlanta," which was published earlier this month by the University of California Press. Thank you for joining me today, Dan. Thank you, thank you for having me. And the first question that I have for you is, what brought you to writing this book? You know, it's it's Atlanta, Georgia, and and it's a great place for me to go. But I, you know, I, it, it's 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 interesting to learn. Um, some of the details that you provided in this book. So so what brought you to the book?
1: Well, I've been in Atlanta, both at Georgia Tech and at Georgia State for about 18 years now. And throughout my career, I've always done, wherever I've been, I've always done a lot of both applied research, research and policy work in whatever city I'm in. And I've been doing work in Atlanta for this entire time, both as a really as a scholar and a participant observer in terms of especially in terms of housing and community development and i've been uh, well increasingly and persistently frustrated with the policy decisions that have been made Uh, in the region and in the city. And that frustration just has continued and built. And to some degree, I started thinking about writing this book about five years ago, started collecting stuff, assembling stuff, thinking about how I would organize it. And then I finally pulled the trigger, and it's really been uh, a catharsis of that of that frustration, uh, ability to release it into this book to some degree. Um, and I'm hoping it's it's both uh, informative for scholars. Of cities, uh, but also for practitioners and policymakers, not just in Atlanta, but in especially sunbelt cities and cities that are experiencing a lot of growth and a lot of growth pressures, a lot of gentrification pressures, because I think Atlanta is a a paradigmatic case, I call it, of that kind of sunbelt growth and the inequalities that it, Generates and and mult and basically uh, uh, racializes and turns into uh, exclusionary outcomes. Excellent.
2: And frustrations. So these frustrations, do they uh, do they center on any big events that have resulted in a change in the, in the design and the structure of Atlanta, Georgia, and its neighboring communities? Are there any big events that, that uh, you, you have in mind when, when you talk about these frustrations? <laughs>
1: Yes, I in the book I talk about inflection points in the in the last thirty years in the city, and I start with the the end of chapter one, which is really a, a compressed urban development history of the twentieth century in the city. But the the chapter ends with the nineteen ninety six Olympics, and the Olympics were really a formative event in the city and in the region in terms of. Uh, especially in terms of housing and neighborhoods, the it, people call it the olympification of the city. And in particular, they refer to the demolition and redevelopment of public housing in the city and really the clearing out of concentrations of low-income people from central city neighborhoods that to some degree cleared the way for the future gentrification of the city. And instead of Kind of thinking about balanced growth and growth that would benefit all parts of the city and all residents of the city, there was a real concerted effort to focus on middle and upper income residents both keeping them in the city, but especially attracting new middle and upper income residents to the city without thinking about what that would mean to low-income residents, especially renters. And then I turn to, uh, in the 21st century, the next big thing in the city is really the planning and development of the Atlanta Beltline, which begins in the early 2000s. The Beltline is a is a string of trails and parks and potentially transit, although that hasn't happened yet, Um, but really a string of trails and parks that has been the focus of a lot of development, a lot of upscale development in the city. It was planned in the early 2000s without, again, giving attention to what this this development might mean for low-income Atlantans, who would be particularly burdened by the rising rents and the rising housing costs that followed this development. Um, I then turned to the foreclosure crisis and the financial crisis uh, at the end, towards the end of the 2000s and into the the 2010s as a really another transformative event, but also an opportunity because it was to some degree a reset. It was a a do-over because property values fell tremendously and that provided opportunities for public entities and nonprofit entities to acquire properties, to you know, basically stave off gentrification by acquiring properties that could have been used for affordable housing and stabilization of these neighborhoods. Instead, other again, other policy choices were made and local and state government did not respond well to the foreclosure crisis. And what we saw instead, especially at the regional scale, was large institutional investors moving into the region. Atlanta became the number one quote unquote strike zone for private equity investors in single family rental housing. And so we now lead the country in terms of the amount of single family rental housing owned and operated by very large-scale Wall Street-backed uh, institutional investors.
2: Uh, so one of the um, interesting things you pointed out is this Atlanta Beltline. And I think that the um, significance of that is uh, you, you said that there was the belt, the Beltline that was established and then um, later on the housing crisis. However, the Construction of the belt line didn't just end; it just happened that there was another um, groundbreaking event that created another significant change to the community. So what? So what has long been the significance of this belt line? And I think it's—is uh, it suburban neighborhoods that we're talking about when we say belt line? No, the Beltline is in the city of
1: Atlanta, and it circles. It's about four miles in diameter. It's a 22-mile ring around the core of the city, and it goes through 45 neighborhoods in the city. Um, but it, you know, and originally, it the vision of the Beltline was, I think, a very positive thing. It was a vision of trails and transit connecting a wide variety of neighborhoods, Um, but it, it was essentially captured by the real estate community, by the development community, and by city boosters who partnered with the development community with a focus on basically Increasing property values. In fact, the major uh, the major planned fund funding mechanism of the Beltline is a taxing district that depends on rising property values. Um, so it was it it turned into a development project over a community project, and because there was not enough attention given to community impacts and housing impacts on low income folks. Those were not prepared for. There were not policies, sufficient policies put in place. There were some policies that I discussed that were just kind of fundamentally flawed. Um, and so what I, I I did a study in 2007 that showed that even the early planning of the Beltline, because it was sub such a hyped project accelerated housing values even before the taxing district was adopted and then the crash came and so values got reset they came back down and so there was this opportunity having seen the increases before the crash to say let's prepare for the next cycle because values will come back atlanta is not going to stop adding jobs in the long run and it's you know, it it is a Sun belt growing city over uh, over the long run, but instead of that, the focus was just on building the trails, just on building the parks, and those things cause gentrification when they're done at very large scales. Um, it's a it's basically uh, the Beltline is a perfect example of what. Social scientists now call green gentrification or environmental gentrification, and that's what happened. Developers started building apartment buildings and advertising their buildings as beachfront property on the Beltline. Uh, If you looked for apartments after 2012 and you looked to the multiple listing services, you could check a box that would say near the Beltline. It was a real mover of real estate it wasn't just a little park or a little community development project it was this major public private partnership intended to move real estate in fact one developer before the tad was the taxing taxing district was even adopted said the beltline is the most exciting real estate project since sherman burned atlanta uh, which is you know emblematic i mean it, uh, some of the neighborhoods that the belt line runs through were severely disinvested for decades. And now this developer is seeing, you know, the opportunity of these devastated neighborhoods to become revalued, revalorized in a classic kind of rent gap scenario where he sees much more potential for land value than is there before the belt line.
2: Wow. It sounds like a policy that was put into place that, um, by design and 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 by um, how they moved forward with it uh, resulted in a major failure. But and uh, done in other ways could have had been, could have been very promising and added accessibility to Atlanta for lower class population. But instead, just became uh, a way for the already middle class and upper class population to be connected to one another through this beltway. This belt yeah, line.
1: It, it really was a huge missed opportunity itself. Um, people say, well, was the Beltline a bad idea? No, it wasn't a bad idea as it was originally conceived. It was a bad, as you say, a badly uh, transformed idea and a badly implemented idea because of the powers that took it over and because of the way that the city operates, which is in cooperation with corporate and real estate interests, kind of hand in glove, which goes back to the history of Atlanta um, being this city run by a black-white corporate regime where after the 70s, blacks had the kind of titular power of the mayor uh, of the mayor and the city council, but behind the scenes, white corporate power remained and to some degree still calls the shots.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. You, you wrote that the, the uh, lower income African-Americans and blacks in Atlanta, Georgia, continued to struggle even with an increased representation of the African-Americans and black political and economically wealthy class. And, and you say that it's largely because of the corporate backing that is largely largely white? Is that what you're Telling me? Yes. Yes. I mean, this is not um, Atlanta became known. Clarence Stone
1: and other political scientists have written about this, and historians. Atlanta became known as the uh, the the kind of notable city for this black-white urban regime politics, uh, where there was a little bit of pushback at the beginning when Maynard Jackson got elected, but mayor hartsfield and mayor allen white mayors in the middle part of the century had formed this coalition with the black power structure really ministers uh some businessmen real estate interests saying you know we'll we'll allow you to do x y and z we'll allow you voting rights will you know but when it comes to the major decisions uh, it's still going to be a very pro-business, pro-development community, and they didn't adopt policies like affordable housing policies. They, if they developed housing in black communities, it was highly segregated. And when Jackson came to office in the 70s, he pushed back at first, but he to some degree was, as I say, called into the principal's office, and I'm meaning really the, the office of Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines, um, and saying, no, you can't do that. If you do that, we're going to make things very painful for you. And eventually, the black mayors govern in very similar ways to the white mayors. Uh, Andrew Young, of course, is well known for kind of courting global capital, moving into the city um, without a lot of attention, again, to how that benefits
2: low-income Atlantans. Yeah, and as a res- as a product of these pressures from uh, from the corporate offices, I, th- I think that it uh, um, may- maybe has resulted in how the city is built, how it is rebuilt, how it's districted, redistricted, and even rezoned. Um, in terms of where businesses are located in residential areas. But how has that impacted where people live, where people live based on their class and of their race for Atlanta? Sure. Um, You know, the city of Atlanta,
1: despite its gentrification, remains one of the most segregated cities in the country, which is, you know, something that you might think, doesn't go together. But in fact, gentrification is just a, a reshuffling of segregation. You know, it's it's segregating high-income people in certain places and low-income people then get pushed out into other places. Um, and to some degree, that is now Starting to, well, in significant degree, that's increasingly including the suburbs, meaning lower income blacks are being pushed out more and more of the city uh, into lower incomes and southern suburbs. Uh, but basically, the use of, of continued use of zoning, but also the kind of forces of private public private partnerships and redevelopment and where those developments happen, not just the Beltline, but major, there's a major new park on the West side in a black neighborhood that is already showing signs of significant gentrification of that neighborhood. Um, And the folks who live there are finding rents going up quickly. New residents into the city are, uh, if you know, if they're high-income, they can live in those neighborhoods. If they're low-income, they're either going to be pushed out to the outskirts of the city or into the suburbs.
2: Yeah, so um, one of the questions that I have that's moving a little bit away from the script then is, so one of the things that I see here is that it's moving people out. Is that a result of um, inconsistencies in terms of uh cost of living and the type of jobs that the people in these neighbor neighborhoods have or the amount of education and who's living in these communities that's a good question i mean one of the things that has happened especially since the
1: great financial crisis is that atlanta has become a a, a hot city for high paid jobs moving into the city tech jobs but office jobs and those folks, many of them making over $100,000 a year, are bidding up rents. They're they're bidding up land values and rents. And uh, Atlanta is, to some degree, uh, a bifurcated economy as a result, meaning we are attracting high-wage jobs, but we're not attracting middle-wage jobs. And so what you get is the kind of classic global city uh concept where the high wage jobs create spin-off jobs that are service jobs and very poorly paid. So we're becoming more like a, a New York city where there are lots of high end jobs, lots of low end service jobs and not much in between. And that the problem is the folks with the low end jobs can't afford the rents in the city increasingly. So they're pushed farther out. That puts strains on transportation. That puts strains on the quality of life in the communities they live in. Um, so it's it it to some degree, you know, it's a resegregation that is highly inefficient because you know people say, well, would you like Atlanta to be the way it was in 1985 when all the poor were in the central city and the affluent were out? I'm like, no, that wasn't a good system. But why is it better to have? the wealthy in the central city and the poor disperse to these low quality suburbs that have no mass transit, few, uh, few jobs and few public health facilities. That may be a worse thing. Both of those options are bad, but uh, it's not clear at all that dispersing the poor to low quality, uh, low opportunity suburbs is necessarily a good thing.
2: And then, as development continues to occur, I, I'm just guessing. Does that push people further and further outside of the Beltline? That's right. The
1: Beltline has, you know, in in the, at the beginning of the kind of recovery from the foreclosure crisis, prices started going up right, you know, within that. My research shows within a half mile of the Beltline, but that aura that you know halo effect is now spreading farther and farther from the belt line so as some of my students say there's very few places in the city proper where rents have not been going up a lot in the last 5 years so the first 5 years was near the belt line the second 5 years the halo had spread to encompass much of the city
2: That's scary in the case of another big crisis happening and all of a sudden a falling out because. Well, that
1: is a, that is a good question is values have gone up, especially since COVID very fast. Um, This is not just true in Atlanta. This is true in many cities. Um, And, you know, people like to say, well, I'd like to see property values come down. Well, when they come down a little bit, that can be a good thing. When they come down fast and hard, it,
0: That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Yeah, and that leads us right to the next question, actually, and and transformation of the belt line and outside of the belt line. Have you noticed any other major transformations beyond uh, the value of the homes increasing and the belt line continuing to expand and uh, ever more uh, development, particularly in the tech industry? Um,
1: You know, we we are seeing, especially in the northern suburbs, we saw at the same time as the Beltline boom after the foreclosure crisis, uh, in the northern suburbs, a big boom in uh, high end residential development, um, in you know basically mixed use development. Some of that, unfortunately, though, as I write about in in the fifth chapter of the book, was was used. Uh, and planned for basically replacing lower income populations in those more affluent suburbs. So Atlanta has seen a tremendous diversification of the region. 80% of the growth in the region from 4 million to 6 million from 2000 to 2020 roughly. 80% 80% of that pop of that two million population growth is Black, Latinx, and Asian households, and a big portion of it is Black households. You know, we we are essentially the the leading metro in terms of a growing Black population. Well, that is happening in the suburbs primarily. Um, the city is only a small portion of the region, and this growing diversity of the region is seeing, you know, it's, it's basically being seen as a negative thing in some more affluent suburbs, and they have been pushing back on that growing diversity, trying to do what they can to maintain their affluence, maintain their majority white status. And one way that they're doing it is saying, oh, we can develop a new giant mixed-use project. Why don't we put it right over here where all those low-income low-income apartments are or older apartments are? And so they've used their, their powers not just of exclusionary zoning, but of redevelopment authority, their bonding authorities, their ability to do tax increment financing to what I call displace-and-replace- uh, lower income populations, often primarily black and Latinx with higher income, whiter populations. Uh, one of the trends in Atlanta that has helped that. Uh, started in 2005 and it's the increased municipalization of the suburbs. Basically the secession, Atlanta historically was not as fragmented as many Northern cities like Chicago or Detroit with you know hundreds of suburbs that had their own municipal entities. Atlanta was more county-based. But in 2005, really 2004, the Republican Party took control of both the legislature and the governor's office. That gave it the ability to pass laws that allow localities to municipalize. And Sandy Springs, a very affluent suburb that had wanted to incorporate for many years, jumped on that opportunity. And then about 10 other more affluent suburbs followed. And By incorporating, you gain more ability to control your own zoning. You you gain control of your own policing. Uh, And those are two biggies. Uh, But you also gain the ability to raise bonds and control development subsidy.
2: So that's really important. And then also those communities that are led by city are they led by city councils that are then represented within their uh, by, by their own people and their own locality? That's right. So, it, I mean,
1: they may have had some kind of governance structure before, but this gives them the full powers of a municipality versus a village or a town. Um, and basically they rest part of the tax base away from the county and the ability to float bonds and control development.
2: And then you also write about in your book the different colleges and universities in Atlanta and being rich in, in higher education. Um, how, how have the colleges and university universities fared or impacted this change of, of Atlanta through the years?
1: Well, that's a really good question. I mean, it, it is true that a lot of people don't think of Atlanta as kind of a college town, but or a, a, but it really is. It has a high proportion of of students and of of folks with college degrees, um, and those universities have grown a lot. Um, historically, of course, in the twentieth century. Uh, It was very important because we had six historically Black colleges and universities, which were very formative in terms of that Black power structure. Uh, But more recently, the growth of Georgia State, which has become one of the biggest universities in the country, the growth of Georgia Tech is very important in terms of drawing high paid employers into the city. A lot of those employers are locating right near Georgia Tech. We of course have Emory, um, but it's, those universities have played a significant role in uh, the redevelopment of the central city. I would argue Georgia Tech, probably the most important of those actors. And again, I'm not saying it's bad to draw in high paid jobs, but that does have an impact
2: on rents and on land values yeah this is a this is a very interesting topic and uh, there's a wealth of information that continues to that can only continues to grow as time passes um, it, it'll be interesting to see over the next 10 15 20 years uh, even in the next couple of years what what happens in Atlanta Georgia with uh, with the industry with the community um, at, at, as as new things arise, it will, I mean, it's, it's uh,
1: we continue to grow. Um, but unfortunately we continue to kind of bifurcate in terms of the fortunes of lower income Atlantans and higher income Atlantis. Recently money magazine named Atlanta as the best city to live in. And my, my response to that was, yeah, money's right for people with money. Um, it's a good place to live if you don't need social supports. You know, we don't have expanded Medicaid in the state. We don't have a minimum wage. We don't have much affordable housing development. Uh, but if you're affluent, things don't cost a lot. Uh, so yet, I mean, housing is, is costing more and more, but still for affluent people, it's a relatively affordable city. Um, but for low-income folks, it's very expensive, and there are very few social supports.
2: Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what the what the retention rate of graduates, even from the local universities, is for the for the local community, and how many people move out of the state or at least out of the region uh, because because the first few years out of college can be uh, can be low income, can be um, that's true.
1: There, It's definitely uh, a struggle for folks who aren't making hundred
2: thousand dollars out of college. Well, I look forward to your to your follow up to this research and uh, and whether it turns into books or articles. Please keep me keep me updated, keep me in the in the loop, and uh, and thank you. Great. Thanks for having me. The one dying question that I have is, you know, what are you working on now? Has your research transitioned to a different area or are you continuing on Red Hot City? Um, no, I, I am always kind of got
1: ideas. They mostly concern housing and housing inequality. Um, right now, I'm really looking at a, a, a variety of housing inequality topics, both in Atlanta and in other cities. Um I'm particularly interested in uh, why uh, and how these large investors have kind of selected Atlanta and similar cities as their primary areas and what that means for different communities. So that's one big topic I'm
2: working on. Yeah, it's interesting. Georgia, for the most part, is very rural. Uh, am I accurate in saying that?
1: Yeah, the big investors are mostly in Atlanta metro Um rather than downstate Georgia but there are smaller cities we have Savannah we have Macon um, but we have Augusta those are the the, the kind of second tier cities um, but you know the Metro Metro Atlanta is half the state's population basically and they have a different
2: facade that they tend tend to show off and into the market for 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 tourism I, I think. Right, Uh, kind of a backwood not backwoods so let me let me correct myself on that more of a uh, more of a rural landscape setting where people can slow down rather than in atlanta where it's fast-paced city slickers yes yes all right well thank you again dan and i look forward to having you back on the show for your next book uh, whatever it might be whatever it may come out and uh, thank you Thanks for having me. Again, this is New Books in Sociology. My name is Michael Johnston, and have a great day.